Our sermon text reading this morning for a sermon in Amos comes from Exodus. Dave will explain why. (laughs) Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. These are God's words. You may be seated. Well, you're all spread out all over the universe here. I'm sorry for that. It's uh, just kind of the way what we're left with when I got here this morning to set up. I do want to do two things. Um, we, we are going to be doing some map work this morning again because we're starting a new book in the Bible. Uh, we're starting the book of Amos, and I will explain Exodus 34 in just a moment. And so if you do not have and you want a map that says LB up in the left-hand corner, raise your hand and he'll get one to you real quick. These maps are for you. They're yours. I want you to mark them up. And um, if you, I see that hand, the buses will wait. Um, and, and so uh, just consider these yours, use them as you will. It's a different map than we started the uh, book of Jonah with. The book of Jonah had M-E, that stands for Middle East. And uh, in that map, wait, there's another hand. He's okay, it's going good now. The revival started. Um, <laughs> So this is exactly what we're looking for. Um, And then, uh, yeah, so in the ME map, there's a light blue box that's right in the center of that map. This map, the um, LB, is the blow-up of that blue box um, in in the map that we started Jonah with. So in case you're wondering what um, we're looking at and all the rest of it, but put it down for the moment. Once you get it, put it down. And now I'm going to explain Exodus 34. I know this is very convoluted. Today's talk is a little bit more of a lecture than a sermon, although we are going to look at the text of Scripture. Uh, About a month ago, we started a series in the Minor Prophets, and we're going through the Minor Prophets in chronological order. And so for us to understand the backdrop, what's going on historically, who the kings are of Israel and surrounding regions, and all these different things, I personally find to be very helpful in me understanding the text of Scripture, where things are taking place, and all the rest of it. I know you cannot see this map from where you are seated. After the service, I'm going to leave this up here for a few minutes. If you want to come up and make marks where I've made marks, knock yourselves out so that it's there and and so on and so forth. Um, The reason that we read Exodus chapter 34 this morning is this. Exodus 34 speaks, first of all, to the very long suffering of God, meaning that he is very slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what the 
verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7 are about in Exodus 34. But he says, do not believe that I will forget my judgment. Because I will visit my judgment on the third and fourth generation. Really and truly, the, that is the theme verse, which is, it was quoted in Jonah. The concept is very apparent in Amos that we'll start this morning. And I am using that for my own thinking in terms of the backdrop for our series in the Minor Prophets. God is, in fact, very slow to anger. And he is very rich in mercy. And he wants people to come to repentance. But there's a limit. And when God's limit is reached, judgment will come. And in the Minor Prophets, we see both components. We see the long-suffering nature of God as people for generations have lived in disobedience to him. But the Minor Prophets also speak to the judgment that is coming, not only on the people of God, but all people. All the nations surrounding the people of God. And we'll see that in the book of Amos in particular. So as we come to each one of these books week in and week out, I will likely reference that text in Exodus chapter 34. But I want you to understand why. We do have a God that is slow to anger and abounding in rich mercy. And his loving kindness is forever and ever. But he never forgets judgment as well. So what I always do, well, yeah, I think I always do it, so I don't think that's a lie. I try to give you a review of the book that we just finished and then give you an introduction to the book that we're starting. And so I'm going to give you about three minutes on the book of Jonah because Jonah, which we just finished, um, is, is not comparatively uh, complicated and it's comparatively brief and, and so on and so forth. And so I want to give you that just uh, very quick um, if somebody hadn't messed up my notes, it would have been much kinder. Um, it could have been me. Who knows? But uh, anyways, I want to give you a review of Jonah. The book of Jonah was, I believe, written by Jonah. It could have been written a number of years following the actual events of the book in which, it was rec uh, which were recorded for us. But uh, the events of the book of Jonah occurred sometime in the middle uh, part of the 8th century, meaning the 750s, 760s BC. Uh, at that period of history, Israel had already gone through a civil war, meaning that the country had been divided into two separate countries, the north and the south. It's very similar to America, really, in, in different ways. They'd had a, a, a civil war, and the country was living in... A, what we'll call a tenuous peace between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Jonah wrote during that period of time, and he was a very um, unwilling prophet because he is the only one of the minor prophets that was called to go speak to a Gentile nation. He didn't speak to the people of Israel. He was called to go to a city called Nineveh, which was one of the great cities of Assyria who come into play very prominently in just a couple of decades following the writing of Jonah. 
Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, and he was very adamant about not going to Nineveh. He fled from the presence of the Lord. We explored for a long period of time why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't like him because they were Gentiles. He knew their potential power uh, as the nation of Assyria. He had seen their power in history past and so on and so forth. And he also knew, and chapter 4 of Jonah told us this, that God was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and likely to be merciful if the people of Nineveh actually heard God's word. And that's exactly what took place. Nineveh repented. Jonah was angry. He couldn't understand why God would show mercy to this people. He prayed in anger to the Lord, this is why I didn't want to go, because I knew you were merciful and slow to anger. And this is what I didn't want to have happen. And so he sat outside the city waiting for God to change his mind because of his prayer. God didn't change his mind and the book ends. And, that, and that's the whole thing. And so what were the takeaways? Well, there's many beyond what I will mention for us. But some of the main highlights are these. God had made a promise to Abraham that through his seed, which was ultimately Israel, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And if the nation failed to do their job to proclaim their God to the world, God was going to take care of it one way or the other. And he did that through a very unwilling prophet, Jonah. The second promise or, or reality that we can take away from Jonah is, and, and this seems so simple, God loves people who are very unlovely. Nineveh was a terrible place filled with pagan people who offered human sacrifice and butchered people by the thousands in horrible and terrible ways. They were the Nazi Germany of their day. There was nothing lovely about them, and yet God wanted his word to go to that people. And those people responded in repentance, and it, it was a lesson that needs to be taken to heart, that God is slow to anger and abounding in mercy, but at the same time, his judgment is not forgotten which takes us in to the book of Amos. Because Amos and Hosea, the book that we'll look at after Amos, were written at the same time, about the same time period that Jonah was written. 760 B.C. They were active, so to speak, at the same period of time. Now, Amos is a very interesting figure. And we'll look at the timeline in just a moment, and I'll point out a couple of things and, uh, and then we'll plow through this thing. Amos <clears throat> was an unusual character because he was called to speak to the people of God in Israel. But Amos did not come from a prophetic line. His father, his grandfather were not prophets. He didn't go to prophet school. As a matter of fact, he was a shepherd and he was a grower of figs. Anybody here like figs? I love figs. Y'all like, does anybody not like figs? 
Oh, wow. See, it's kind of almost equal. He grew figs. And, and the language indicates that he was probably a kind of a chief shepherd and, 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 and a really good fig grower. You know what I'm saying? And so he may have overseen other people that grew figs and overseen people who were also shepherds. But, but having said that, I mean, you all know that I absolutely love agriculture and those who work in agriculture, but it doesn't necessarily qualify you to be a prophet. But, I mean, that's a point to be taken, you see, because Amos was given God's word to deliver other people, and he was an ordinary guy. So God's word can be delivered by ordinary people which means that ordinary people ought to know God's word so that we could communicate it to other ordinary people. So chalk one up for read your Bible every day because we need to know God's word to communicate it to to people. But that's who Amos was. In, In the midst of the 7th century B.C., God says, I have a message for you that I want you to deliver to a bunch of people. Now, now, what I want you to do, if you have your timelines, and uh, I was going to bring the mic over. We're getting a little mic that's going to be down here, so when I do this, can you all hear me? I mean, you may not want to hear me, but I, my voice generally carries fairly well in a room. I recognize this is the timeline, and I, and I open it up, and I just want to show you what's going on so you can understand what's happening during the period of Amos and Jonah <clears throat> and uh, so on and so forth. At the beginning of this timeline, you have a big blob of of green and orange that's kind of muted together, if that makes sense. What that means is that the kingdom of Israel is still united. This is the period of David and Solomon when Samuel was running around as prophet and so on and so forth. And then the time of the, uh, of the, uh, the timeline is at the very top. But this all comes to an abrupt halt, and that represents the civil war that Israel had. And following that, the country is divided into two separate countries. The top, which is in orange, is the northern tribes, ten tribes, which is called Israel. And you can follow along there. We're not going to do any detailed work. But that's the northern tribes. And then the green in the bottom is the south, which is called Judah in the Bible. And it's this entire separate country. And they both have their own king, and they work independently. There's sometimes strife between them. But if you move forward sort of blob one, blob two, to blob three, if that makes sense, I really want you to get this so you understand. The orange kind of shoots up to the top of the page, and the green drops down toward the bottom of the page. This period is the period in which Jonah wrote, and Amos, and Hosea. Okay, all three of those wrote during this period. And you'll see their names in that orange box there. What this upward trend means is that the northern kingdom, Israel, was expanding. Politically, things were going quite well for Israel. Their borders were expanding. 
They didn't have a lot of strife from the outside. In other words, not a bunch of enemies trying to crowd them in. And financially, they were doing pretty good. They weren't doing rock star good, but they were doing okay. Now, if you look down to the green, what's happening with the southern kingdom? The same thing. Everything's going pretty well. The kingdom is expanding. Politically, there's peace. They are, you know, financially fairly stable. In the north, the king was Jeroboam II. Same king as when Jonah was, was preaching. And then in the south, the king's name was Uzziah. Both of them were terrible guys. And I mean terrible guys, not just politically, but they did not love the Lord. But what does a country do that is politically stable and financially okay and expanding and at peace? Do they care if the country is being led by somebody who is ungodly? Well, I can think of a few countries that might prove to be examples of this kind of behavior in, you know, recent years or in past years and probably in future years. You really don't care if godliness is at the forefront because, quite honestly, I'm comfortable and I'm safe and I got enough groceries and my kids are fairly happy my wife's not nagging me to work 70 hours instead of 50, and things are going pretty good. So let us not rock the boat. That is exactly what is going on in both the north and the south when Amos is called to be a prophet. Okay? Now, put your timelines away for just a minute. We're going to do two sections of map work today. I promise you this will not be boring. I find it riveting. It is two separate countries led by two separate kings. Grab your map. Okay? Everybody open it up. I know you cannot see my map, but you can see the crease where the four lines meet in the center of your map. Yes? Okay. Just to the... Uh, about an inch, just a little bit above that crease, you will find Jerusalem. Everybody find that? Jerusalem. Circle that rascal. Jerusalem shows up in the Bible quite a few times, both in the Old and the New Testament. So it's nice to know where Jerusalem is. All right? Right below Jerusalem, about an inch, one inch south of that, is a place called Tekoa. Tekoa. Everybody with me on Tekoa? That is Amos's hometown. That's where he was a fig picker and a sheep herder. Okay? Right. Jerusalem is the capital of southern Israel at the time. Right? Now, Amos is called to go speak to Israel, the northern kingdom. All right? And he does most of his preaching at a place called Bethel. So if you go an inch north of Jerusalem, you'll see Bethel, circle that rascal. That's where Amos spent most of his time. It's all the map work you need to do right now. We'll come back to the map in a middle, in a minute. 
and I'm being serious here, America had a civil war. What would happen if a man of agriculture left Georgia during the Civil War, or let's say a year after the Civil War ended, and he came north and he said, I want to have a conversation with all you Yankee leaders because I have a word from God for you. Well, you come from the wrong place. Your accent is off, and I'm being serious. You dress differently than we do up here in the north, and you have a word of God for us. Not going to be the most widely and well-received spokesman for God. Just like Jonah, who didn't want to go to Nineveh, now, Amos didn't rebel against going up to the northern kingdom, but he was certainly out of place. He's not the guy that you would pick to deliver God's message. God's going to get his job done any way that he wants to. And so this is how the book begins. There are some things that I will tell you about, some things I will left unsaid until another time. The book begins, so I'm hoping you turn to Amos. I'm going to read the first two verses. The words of Amos, and we all know who Amos is by now, who was, a member, uh, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. Now, remember, when we say Israel now, we're just talking about the northern kingdom, all right? Not the whole package. The southern kingdom will get spoken of in this book, but not very much. Most of the messages for all the north, all right? So he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, because he was from the south, in the days of Jeroboam, who is the king in the north, the son of Joash, jo Jeroboam's daddy, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. I'm not going to say anything about the earthquake. A couple years after this, there was a massive earthquake in the entire region, and archaeology bears out that, that city walls tumbled in and all this other kind of stuff took place. But it was a landmark point in history, and so a lot of things, are ref they refer to the great earthquake. That's all you get on earthquake study for today. All right. Now God is speaking, and he's telling Amos his message. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. I don't have time to unpack all of that, but God is going to speak and his word is a roar. Now, friends, I was trying to figure out a lot of different ways to, to emphasize and paint a picture of what that might sound like or look like. Short to say, this is the transition in Exodus 34 from the patient, long-suffering God to the God of judgment. And when judgment comes, he roars. It comes like a lion. Now, a few of us in this room may have heard a mountain lion roar, and it is an unearthly 
sound that it particularly if you hear at night is very disconcerting. An African lion, which I have not heard roar, God roars his judgment. There's nothing passive about what's going on. And his judgment is going to be terrifying, it's going to be complete, and it's going to be all in, I mean, it's just going to be the whole big package. So that's how Amos starts. Now, let me tell you how the book works a little bit, and we're going to go through this. Please bear with me, because we've got a little more map work to do, and some things from the text that I want us to see, and so that we understand how the book's going and what Amos is doing. Amos brings eight indictments against eight different groups of people, all right? In other words, he said God is going to judge eight different groups for eight different reasons. And his judgment is going to be complete. As a matter of fact, in almost every case, it is represented by fire that destroys the people, all right? And God is going to bring that. And every last one of them starts like verse 3 starts. Thus says the Lord... For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Every one of those eight sections starts with that same line. Not for the three, but for the fourth, I'm going to put a whooping on you. Final judgment is coming. Now I want to clear this up so that we don't have any hang-ups about all of this. What God is not saying is, you can sin three times, but on the fourth, the whooping's coming. Okay? That is not what is saying here. It's not even necessarily concerned with the individual sin. What it is is a demonstration that God has been long-suffering, patient, slow to anger, but his patience has run out. And so there's these eight edicts against eight different groups of people, and it all starts the same way. I have been patient with you. Now my patience is done, and judgment is coming. So that's point number one that I want to make. The second thing that I want us to understand is this. The nature of these sins and the nature of these crimes that we'll look at very briefly here in just a minute are long, ongoing heinous crimes against God and against humanity, all right? These aren't one-off, I did a little lie yesterday kind of things. I'm not grading sin. That's not what I'm trying to do. But what I'm saying is this is a pattern of sin that God has allowed to continue, that he will allow to continue no more, and as a consequence, he is going to roar. So I'm going to walk us through very quickly the first six of these, okay? I'll point out the text. I'll tell you what their crime was. And I want you to know that each of the crimes in the first six that God happens to mention are crimes of, of one group of people against another. As a matter of fact, they all fit the category of war crimes, okay? Now, so consequently, we, we step back and say, I'm not really guilty of war crimes, 
So we're kind of disconnected from the whole thing. But I will wrap that up and try to show you how we might fit into this category toward the end. But I'll just walk through this very quickly. The first, again, is in verse 3. And I'm not going to read that first sentence every time, but you get it in your brain. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and the four, just kind of ignore the number, but keep in mind the principle. I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron so that I will send fire upon the house of Hazel, which is a, a main place in Damascus, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, another place in Damascus. Here was the crime. The people of Damascus had come against Gilead in a battle, in against a war, and their soldiers were so violent and so, um, I don't know what to say, that they slaughtered men, women, and children as if somebody was going through with a scythe in a wheat field. Now, our tendency is to say, all is fair in love and war. But God sees and judges the heart, you see. And this wholesale slaughter in this instance of man against humanity was unacceptable to God. But keep in mind, and I want to point this out now, but not try to point it out every time. God is come to the end of his patience. It's not just for the one event. It is the one event that has brought God to the end of his patience. Does that make sense? So this is a serial pattern of behavior for a people it is just highlighted by this one event. So Damascus has brought a slaughter um, against, uh, uh, against Gilead. The next one comes in verse 6, and it involves Gaza. This is where we're going to do our... Uh, so for 3 and then 4, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So what that means is Gaza, we'll find out where Gaza is, came against another group of people, enslaved them all, and sold them into slavery to this people called Edom. So again, it's not just a comment on slavery, but what God is offended by is not only the history of these people in Gaza, God is concerned with common human dignity which has been violated by one people against another, okay? And they think they can get away with it, but God sees everything. Verse 9 of our text speaks of Tyre in exactly the same way. There are three transgressions, and they were four, and I will not revoke my punishment, because they delivered up a whole people of two Edom and did not remember the, com the covenant of brotherhood. Now, what happened in Tyre was this. They did the same thing that the people of Gaza did, captured an entire group of people, sold them into slavery to Edom, but the people that they took into captivity were people that they had a treaty with. Not only a political bond, but there was a blood oath taken between these two groups of people. And they captured those people and sold them into slavery. Does God care about man's word? The bond of brotherhood. 
was broken. And God said, that is the straw that broke the camel's back here. Verse 11, we have Edom for three and then four. I will not revoke their punishment because, they per- because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he's kept his wrath forever. Now, Edom is an interesting situation. And I'll explain why this is such a grievous crime and a war crime. In the Old Testament, back in the patriarchal days, there was Jacob and Esau. And they were brothers. Romans tells us God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Esau was the guy that sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Okay? He cared so little about what God had provided for him that he sold it for lunch. Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Esau became the father of the Edomites, an entirely different nation. And Edom and Israel, I mean big Israel now, were always at fighting. And the Edomites were the ones that were always the aggressor, coming after them, trying to fight them. This was brother against brother. It was strife caused by one side, brother fighting against brother, and God said, that is enough. It's gone on throughout all the ages, but that was the crime of Eden. Now, verse 13, we have the Ammonites. The technical bit is nearly done, folks, but this is really important. Three transgressions of the Ammonites and four, I will not revoke punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. The Ammonites were so violent in their pursuit of expanding their own nations that what is described here took place. And that has taken place throughout the ages. The Turks did it in Armenia. Um, It is uh, a convention, and that was after a long history of God's patience, the end. Moab is we find in chapter 2, verse 1, and it is, it's the most strange and perhaps the most subtle. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, four, because they burned, the lime, burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now, what in the world does that mean? When Moab came in against Edom, what they did was they dug up a bunch of graves, including the leadership of, of uh, Edom, and they burned their bones to lime, to dust. It was a sign of uh, not, not just hostility, but it, it was just the coarsest way they could show disrespect to another people. It, it, was, it, was, it was a way for them to express um, unnecessary indignity toward a people. And and God said, that's enough. And God roars. Now, Amos is telling everybody in the north what God is going to do. And he's gone through six things. And, And I suspect, this is Dave interjecting, don't take this as scripture, that the people are smiling. 
they're smiling. Now open your maps and I'll show you why, okay? We only got about six minutes, so really and truly. I, yeah, riveting, right? I mean, this is great stuff. Now I'm not going to do them in order because it'll take me too long to remember how to do it in order, okay? Here's Bethel, right? This is where, Am uh, I'm sorry, Amos is speaking. Right up here on the coast, now circle this rascal, is Tyre. Tyre is one of the places that God just declared judgment against. Okay? Everybody got it? Way over to the right and way up high is Damascus. Circle that rascal. We'll stay on the coast for a minute. Way down here, right on the coast, almost two inches from the end of the map, is Gaza. Now keep in mind, these are regions, not just a pinpoint, okay, on the map, but they're regions. So there's Gaza down here. Everybody, you can come up afterwards. Over here, over here, you'll see it in big light letters, is Ammon, the Ammonites. Okay? They, judgment was spoken of by God from the Ammonites. Down just a little bit, over here, what do we got? We have got Moab. Okay? Everybody look where my finger is. Okay, sorry. There we go. And then down a little bit further. Okay, I'm waiting. Okay. You guys are a good audience. I'll be here all week. Here's Ammon. Uh, and, then, and then down here are the Edomites. The Edomites. The son of Esau. The sons of Esau. Now, just do a little figuring. You got them all marked up? Well, you're going to have to look afterwards. Or we'll be here all day. But what I'm saying is, here's the northern kingdom of Israel. Here's Judah as well. Look where my finger is. All these people groups around where Amos is speaking represent local threats. And Amos is saying God is going to judge and destroy all these people. And you're sitting there going, man, I thought things were good yesterday. Tomorrow looks spectacular. Right? Southern boys got a point. I like this guy. There's one other thing that these people all have in common, and this is a very important point. None of these people have the word of God. None of these people have the word of God. And all their crimes are crimes against humanity. They're war crimes. Which, by that, what I mean is they are crimes against the standard conscience of man that Romans 1 speaks of. The, the common decency that allows us to understand what is right and what is wrong. And all six of these groups have gone too far, and God will rain judgment on people who have defied the conscience that God has given them. You see what I'm saying? And so Amos pauses, I believe, 
for dramatic effect because he's a much better preacher than I am. And his sermon continues. Verse 4 of chapter 2, we're almost done, don't panic. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke punishment. And then he goes on with the because. Wait a minute. Everything has just turned on its head. These six groups of people, they deserve everything God brings against them. And Amos's sermon says, I am no longer talking about pagans who do not have the word of God, who have violated human conscience. I am speaking to the chosen people of God who have the word of God, who have had his prophets for generations, who have the temple, have a vehicle for worship what God himself ordained, and the same judgment is coming upon We will look at that next week. Last thing I want to say and then we're done. When, we, when I do an introduction like this, when we study a book like this, it, it is easy to say great history. What boneheads those people were to defy God. I'm glad I'm not like them. And I can learn from their mistakes and avoid their mistakes. And that's about as far as it goes. Next week, much clearer than I will say now, we are the chosen people of God. We have God's word. And Amos was written for us. For us as individuals, for us as this congregation, for the church universal. And, and our crimes can be the crimes of the six. Not necessarily in specific, but they can be crimes against conscience, you see. And they can be crimes against God's word. That he has revealed to God's people. And we will write ourselves into this book because it was written to us about us. And we'll see more how next week. Let me pray. Father, um, if I have been boring, it is my fault. Because there's nothing boring about your word. If I have been unclear, that is my fault. Because there is nothing unclear about your word. All glory, praise, and honor belong to you. In Christ's name. Amen.